You're listening to the Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we're going to be talking about all things tech and I'm joined by my fellow presenter Paul Armstrong who is author of Disruptive Technologies, nearly couldn't say that. Disrupted you. I know. How are you doing Paul? (laughs) I'm doing all right, yeah, you? Mm. Good. Can I ask you about clothes? Where do you buy your clothes? Uh, I buy a, a range, from a range, online, offline, uh, all of that sort of stuff. I have size 13 feet. so Size 13? Oh yeah, my God. it's a shame. Um, because you walk in and you say, do you, that, this is the way I shop at the moment, do you do size 13 shoes? And they go, no, no, thanks so much. See you Bye. Soon. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, walk out and, you know, that sort of thing. Size they don't 13. try and say, oh, we've got like 12 and a half, they might fit. Nope, it's, just, it's no point. Well, you know that. Um, and uh, see, I don't really buy clothes online because... When I get them, they just say, I don't really fit. See, okay, free tip, free tip. You buy one that you think probably never going to fit, one that will probably fit, and one above that will fit, and that's what it will definitely fit. But I don't like doing the returns. The returns are so easy. Amazon's just launched a box, haven't they, where you basically pay £100 uh, per year, and you can order as much as you want, as many times as you want, and you send it back for free and that sort of stuff. So people get that return culture. Yeah, that's not very good for the planet, though. I mean, I just think that's... I don't think that's... a recyclable box. What are you talking about? Yeah, but what I'm saying is, what I don't understand is, you go and buy something, and then they must be working on, I don't know, at least 30% being returned. And that's not a really good business model, is it? But that's the thing, but... um, All the packaging, you know, all the stuff that goes with it. Absolutely. But don't forget, that's, again, things that you can change, you know, the amount of packaging you put in stuff. Um, whereas retail, they have a lot of other um, costs and variables and that sort of mm. stuff, which are equally, you know, if something's not being used, like a store, that's way more environmentally yeah, harmful yeah, sometimes. So. You know. It's just that I, I you know, I, I think the problem with clothes is that, you know, they have these sort of models of what a person is and then that's, you know, a size 12 or yep. whatever it is. And, and that doesn't fit my shape. That's the big thing, mm. you know. So it's probably a pretty good job then that I've got Tom with me here today. Segway. That <laughs> wasn't that obvious, was it? <laughs> so I've got Tom Adeyula, uh, and and Tom, I think he was in our. Um, he made it onto our Tech Talk Twenty Two because we were we were really quite keen on this. I'm not quite sure where where Tom is on the technology, so we're going to find out in a minute. But he's got um he's got something called Metail, and basically that offers e-commerce model photography, Paul, mm-hmm. um, and it allows you to capture your body size and shape. I'd 3D love to see garment yours. digitation. Yeah, you, you would like to see that. Are you a glutton for punishment? I don't know. <laughs> so you have your own little, yeah, you have your own sort of person that's you, and and then you no, get not so little in some people's cases. <laughs> and then you get like three D garment digitization. Yeah, it's very very clever. So we're going to talk to Tom in a minute, and then um, are you a cyclist? I am not. No, mm, I quite like cycling. Do you? And just by coincidence, and I swear to you, this is true. I've been thinking of getting an electric bike. Oh, well, there's an electric bike shop at the bottom of the thing as well, isn't there? The bottom of this studio. Yeah. But I've got these boys here. I don't need to go and see them. I've I got two guys in the studio who are experts. So, so I've discount. got uh, Luca Amadusi and uh, Grant Dudson from Cycle, and they're going to tell me all about bikes and what I need to buy, hopefully, or what, 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 what I need. So, uh, so welcome to the show. Um, let's start off with you, Tom. Now, Metail, I think you've um, patented this, actually, but basically it allows users to buy clothes that suit and fit them. Is yep. that, have I got that right? Yes, that's right. Our goal is to sort of make, it, make clothing fit for all yeah. so that we can really make that whole process of buying, finding, uh, and then actually choosing clothes that will work for you yeah. easy and simple. 
So how does a retailer actually size clothes? I mean, is there like some international standard or something? Because if I'm, you know, if I go to one shop, I'm a size 10. If I go to another shop, I'm a size 12. If I go to another shop, I'm a size 14. And that's just that, let alone, you know, the waist measurement's different or, or you know, it seems like the shoulders are different or whatever. So it, where do they get their sizes from? Is there some sort of template of some sort? There just make it really. Up? It's completely archaic. So I think... What you'll find is that everybody does it differently and it all right. relates back to an initial understanding or feeling for what they think their typical customer is. And they will then create a sample based on that size and shape. And then from there, they will then grade up and grade down accordingly. And most of the time that's a linear progression. So right. they will go up by five centimeters for each size or right. down the other side. Um, I once spoke to a guy who'd gone in um, as uh, interim strategy director for one of the high street chains here in the UK. And they were scratching their head wondering, you know, why it was that the, the 20 something that they were targeting wasn't buying their clothes and their, their customer base seemed to have got older. Um, it didn't take him actually that long to figure it out. He worked out that the um, sample fit models, like real people that they were using to create their clothes, were the same people they'd started with 10 years ago. So guess what? Well, they were in yeah. their 30s now, yeah, so they yeah, got yeah. slightly bigger, slightly yeah. wider, and as a consequence, their clothes had changed. If, the if you go to Marks and Spencers, they obviously have old, uh, slightly fatter people, or just probably, are going in there. So you can get Lucy, <laughs> Lucy producer shaking head. No, but Lucy, what happens is, if you go in there and get a size 12, that is definitely 16. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely. Because well, it makes you feel better. So you think, oh, I'm size 12 when I'm in Marks and Spencers, but you're not, actually. Well, there's a lot of vanity sizing, and actually there's a bigger complication. Vanity I think. sizing, vanity there's sizing. a word for it. Yes. Okay. yes, and I think actually with Marks and Spencers, they've sort of lost a bit of their heart of what they used to do because they used to be quite consistent in their sizing. But then they started to create a lot of new brands, so the Autographs and all of Blue Harbour and so on mm. and so forth. So actually the sizing isn't consistent between those brands because those brands are targeting different demographics. So again, they're aiming for different types of sample sizes, which mean that if you're a size 12 in one brand inside Marks and Spencers, you might not be the same size 12 in one of their other Because if I go into Ralph Lauren, not that I can afford it very often, if I do, um, you know, you have to be, even if you're a size 10, you have to get a 14 because they're, they're tiny. Their size is tiny. I don't get them over even my, my shoulders and my arms. And I just I don't understand. It's just mad. Yeah, so I think the whole point, I think, for me was that I wanted to move things away from sizing mm. so that you started to think about, buying clothes for your shape and and help you with finding clothes that would fit so and this all actually came about from you know watching and seeing my wife sort of struggle through the process of taking clothes in from different high street retailers into the changing rooms getting oh, frustrated hate, demoralized and just hate. giving up yeah and it wasn't any better online so it was like well why hadn't it got any better online it's what, worse online what in, was in the any, problem because because then you don't know whether they're big, generous, you know, you know, for their exactly, exactly. So it's even worse, yeah. which is probably why I'm saying to Paul, I don't really shop online because you just you just don't know what to buy, yeah. and I'm not going to buy three lots. I can't, I can't no. be bothered to do the return. And in fact, we we went on a holiday to Vietnam. Mm. And she, she had some stuff, and I had some stuff tailor made. So it was a case of like, well, wow. why do I have to travel all this way to yeah. find stuff that would work in particular yeah. types of styles? Before we go on to what you do, um, the mirrors as well. That's another bugbear of mine. So if you yeah. go into some shops... <laughs> For a lot of people, I think. <laughs> they have mirrors that make you look slim, I swear to you. And then in others, they can't be bothered and they're slightly bendy. And you're thinking, oh, I look horrible in that. But the mirror's pretty rubbish. Um, did, do you find that at all? 
Absolutely. I don't know why shops don't spend a lot of money, money on, on really effort in making mirrors. these. What is it convex, great. isn't it? In, yeah. yeah. But even just the lighting, the lighting's always you know in the wrong direction. Harsh so it's yeah. harsh glaring, it's you know, showing all my your worst is when they've got lighting from above. Oh god, that makes it look dreadful. I my mean, just my favourite is when they've got a sticker on the mirror that says like don't steal our stuff, implying that all their customers <laughs> steal stuff. I kind of love it. It's like we, we, we our customers are only thieves, you know. That yeah, sort yeah, of stuff. yeah. So, so I think we've fairly established, really, that going into a shop is just a fraught with danger. Most of us hate going to changing rooms. Danger. <laughs> danger? It is fraught with you danger. You never know who you're going to meet. No, you never yeah, think exactly. about, No, but it's not just that. everywhere. But by the end of it, I've really got the ump, mostly. I don't yeah. really, I don't find it a joy. And I just go, like, clothes shopping about once every four months because I can't bear it. Um, but online, I, I, I can't shop online because it's even worse for me. It, it absolutely really feels like a lottery mm. in terms of, you know, and you don't know whether the model wearing the clothes is five foot eleven or <laughs> five foot four, or you, know, you don't know whether it suits you. And and it, it, it it's it's there's nothing there that was very helpful for me in terms of what I should buy or how that's going to fit. Yeah, no, I think I think we went through an era basically where it was all about putting everything onto the internet. So you have in of choice but people hadn't really thought through what does that mean for the consumer so if you put everything on the internet so it, look, it feels great right I've got infinite volume of stuff I've got loads of information but it's paralyzing from that perspective it isn't doing what a good store would do if you go into a good store and there's a great sales assistant you go back you know to the department store chains of the 30s and so on you'd have somebody who'd know you and, and be able to look you up and down and say, right, I know exactly the best stuff that's going to work for you. So that, Paul, see? That, that's the sort of ideal the thing that you want, <laughs> right? that sort of personalization of like, they, can, they know what's going to work for me. And rather than showing me everything, they're, how they're it's bringing hang, me to the right, yeah, right, right okay. stuff. Yeah. Whereas I think the internet is just about showing you everything. right? And, and that's not actually what you want. You want to be narrowed down very quickly to what's going to potentially work for you and then choose between that. So I think that's what the next era is going to be about. And that's mm. where, you know, I think we come in to mm. help help that so, journey. <clears throat> before we go on to the clothes thing, what about shoes? I mean, shoes for me is much easier because actually I do think there's a consistency of sizing. don't know how that works. Mm -hmm. um, but actually I don't find that too difficult. Um, you know, I, I'm a size five and it seems to be size five is, is a size five. I mean, sometimes it might be five and a half, but, you know, rarely any different from that. So that doesn't seem too difficult. And that for me is probably quite a good online you know experience because it's pretty easy yeah i mean i think actually a lot of the original um clothes and shoe shops started actually with shoes so a company mm. called zappos in the u.s started selling shoes first because they felt that'd be an easier problem yeah. in fact my first purchase of product online back in 1999 was a pair of shoes mm. um because i felt a similar to you that or I was a size nine like it was yeah. easy so yeah. I bought some Merrill Merrill shoes that way around I think over time actually they've become more and more sort of niche um sellers of shoes and when you get into sort of fine shoes and, and certainly for women the idea yeah. of comfort is actually quite difficult mm. to establish and you know it, if you ever go skiing like boots are always painful and you're always trying to struggle to find a little boot that will work so when you're starting to look at that level of like the intricacies of comfort, then actually you're going to sort of more millimeter accuracy. So you want to understand where yeah. the arch is, where the top of the, the foot is, whether you pronate or supinate and things like that. So that was something that actually felt 
at the sort of high end of driving value was a potentially more intricate problem than something mm. for clothing. So I, I've ordered myself a pair of shoes that are made for me. First time I've ever done it. Woman made. Ah. So so um, so this this is fascinating. I must uh, try and remember the, the the name and put it on the website. But um, basically, they sent you a sock. Plaster of Paris. Yeah, 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 yeah. What with plaster of Paris no, on it? Seriously, yeah. So basically, what you do? <laughs> no, no, no. Seriously, what you do is you put this sock on and you have a bowl of water. So yeah, like sitting on the loo, you know, on, on, <laughs> or a chair. Well, no, yeah. Well, because it because wants to be in the bathroom and yeah. it's wet. So you have to put the you have to put the, your foot and make it all wet, and then you know the so the plaster of Paris it then all sets around your foot shape, all of it, which I think is brilliant. Then you have to get a pair of scissors and cut it because obviously it's yeah. all stuck together. And then you send it off, and then they send you your shoes, all f- like fitted for you. And are they the best shoes you've ever made? Oh, and would you like to plug oh. them? You can't remember who it was. Oh, I can't remember who it was. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I'll remember in a minute. I'll have a, I'll have a quick look up on the Google or in the break, but um, but that's quite good, isn't it? Mm, I like I it. The, I mean, the future of um, fashion and all these sorts of things because we've got camera. Uh, computer vision to such a good degree now is that even with a flat image you can tell sometimes depth of stuff and that sort of thing mm. you've, you've also got cameras that can scan um physical objects and become 3d and i think that's an interesting space as Just well send a sock full of plaster of paris or uh, and also that yeah, yeah. go lo-fi as they say yeah, yeah. so we've, we've obviously established then tom that, that you know this is a big issue sorry it took a bit of time to do that um so so explain exactly um what you're doing because i know you you were very successful in raising some money and, and all that sort of stuff how how what have you done in order to, to try and help us all with, the, with this problem and so, it's a big problem yeah so part of the inspiration actually comes back to plaster of paris in, in ah. fact so um, so okay. having having established uh, the you know the, the problem of trying to find clothes that would fit, um, that really sort of sat in my mind, and I couldn't I couldn't get rid of that that mm. sense of you know that feels like a big problem that needs to be solved, and I'd nearly joined a company called Boo.com back in 1998 that raised 130 million dollars to blue sky every idea in fashion way too early, um, so I spent a bit of time researching what happened since then, but I think. The key sort of moment for me came about when in my last company, I was head of gaming product development. I wanted to create the world's first live blackjack baccarat game. And I wanted to use cameras to recognize cars as they were being dealt live in a casino off the back of it. So I'd just been to Macau. I was sitting in my hotel room in Hong Kong. I was like, oh, I really want to do this. So I just uh, Googled leading expert computer vision. A professor at Cambridge popped up first hit. I'd gone to Cambridge many years ago and it had his telephone number. So I cold called him from my hotel room, uh, Professor Roberta Cipolla. Um, I hadn't even checked what time of day it was and I got through first time and I said, look, I want to build this from scratch. How easy would it be? He said, yeah, no problem. Come visit me. Um, visited him, ended up commissioning one of his PhD students who became a co-founder of Metail later. But the thing that stuck in my mind when I was with him was a lot of his research work in going from photos of Anthony Gormley statues to 3D shape. And in fact, um, he'd started to collaborate with Anthony Gormley. So Anthony Gormley traditionally had um, uh, got into baths of um, plaster of Paris. So he would cling film himself up and then, you know, put the plaster of Paris on to create the initial uh, moulds to yeah. create his, yeah. his, his bodies. Mm. Um, and he got to a point where Roberto was suggesting, well, actually, I can just take photos of you now to recreate that in 3D. And that is now actually how Anthony Gormley 
creates his ah. uh, 3D body model. So he yeah, has... It's quite lazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Roberto <laughs> did this as well. I was only joking. Physically Paul. intensive. Paul, yeah. I'm not joking. Um, Roberto sort of did this as a collaboration for free, and then I think um, Anthony Gormley gave him a, a statue a couple of years ago. That's okay then. Fair, fair, fair return. Well, mm. Fair return. Mm. So that opened my eyes up to the power of computer vision, and it felt very much that rather than having to travel halfway around the world to Vietnam... Maybe this was the route into being able to create a 3D version of you in the home and could be the route to basically establishing a global transactional utility play around trying to make clothing fit for all. So at this point, I then started doing lots of research, trying to understand you know, how, how technology had evolved from the last internet boom. And I focused around three core areas which I felt needed to be solved uh, to be worth building a business. And they were around... Could you build a 3D version of yourself from basic information so a consumer can do it in the home rather than at the time? That's exciting. A lot of people had been gambling on laser scanners being everywhere, which was, just never happened. And the second part, which was actually key, was could you digitize a garment really fast and really cheaply to work with mass market retailers of the likes of the you know growing ASOSes who, rather than having you know, a couple of hundred different types of garments and then turning them once a season, they were putting out a thousand new garments every week, so fifty thousand SKUs a year, you know, high volume. So coming to the point about huge amount of volume to churn through as as a user. Um, so that was key for me, and and nobody had got below three hundred dollars um, to digitize a garment, which was way too expensive. So for me, if I couldn't see a pathway to yeah. hundred times cheaper, three dollars, I didn't see there being a, a global transactional potential business. Um, and then the third part was, could I put a 3D garment on a 3D person in a way that would actually convince a consumer to make a transactional decision? So they would prefer one thing from another and it wouldn't be just a toy or a gimmick mm. or, or something that was was you know discomforting to the user. So that's where we started. And um, well, it's 10 years ago now. I started um, January 2008 on this on this journey to um, create what is now Metail. Um, it's been uh, a fun ride. We focus very much on um, computer vision, machine learning, AI uh, to try and solve the problem. So we created a lot of IP. We've just been granted our 12th patent in the space wow. with another 36 pending. We've got 14 PhDs in the team. The team is the tech team is still based up in Cambridge. It's a bit brainy then. A bit brainy, a bit brainy. A bit brainy. The, the, the less brainy ones like me are down in London. Um, and uh, we're currently focused in terms of our early and late adopter markets out in Asia, actually. So that's where we've seen the sort of early traction in terms of wanting to use our technology and, and mm. start to get consumers focused on on making the whole. So Metail then is effort. exactly what? Is it your own, you know, sort of outlet where you can buy buy clothes? Or are you actually selling the technology to other so retailers? We're, we're selling the technology into clothing retailers. So mm. from a consumer's perspective, we're a bit like PayPal on the inside. So yeah. wherever you see a logo next to a garment which says try me on, um, you click on it and you can create a 3D version of you. And that starting process is from basic information. So your height, weight and bra size gets you something built. They are, Paul. Your bra size will get you something um, built. Oh. Nailing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you edit your hips and waist or put in a sense of body shape, you can get to 92 to 96% accuracy level. So wow. it's about seeing something as fast as possible. So within mm. 10 seconds. And then you can outfit, build and put garments on and spin around 360 degrees 
um, so that you could buy a whole outfit in under a minute. So the, the key part was about making it really usable, simple and fun for the consumer. And then you're starting to get size recommendations and you can mix and match outfits as you go. Um, and and that was that was the key of what we've done. And through that process, we start to generate size and shape information of consumers for the retailer and how they interact with clothing. So what they're trying on. Yeah, the information together. they're getting is the huge. The information is it? massive. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's where we've seen the emergence of really interesting companies who are starting to think that way about how to use that data. So, so, so that means then that if you're if you're a sort of clothing designer or whatever, you can start to see what people are struggling with or what they like or whatever and actually start to design around your consumer as opposed to, you know, you see all that stuff with Fashion Week with that, yeah. that Anna Winter sitting there with her sunglasses on mm. next to the Queen this year. I think she was. Yeah, she was. Um, and all these, you know, catwalk models going back and forth. Um, I'm sure that won't stop. But what I'm saying is it's, it's all about the designer deciding what you're going to like. Yeah. Actually, you're saying that some people now are flipping that on his head and actually really looking at what people like themselves and then maybe designing backwards from that yeah i think it's it's going full circle i mean there's actually a lot of debate right now amongst um the people who run the fashion weeks Mm. as to whether that is any is relevant any longer and Mm. whether they need to change that model um and indeed in terms of flipping it full circle mintra in india for example have a, a brand which is completely uh driven ai based on what consumers are doing so it's actually reacting to what consumers are looking at and, and where the trends are to then build garments to sell back to those consumers. So rather than, as you mentioned, the, the old Fashion Week model is designers deciding what people are going to be wearing in a year to two years time. This is very much about reacting to what people are doing now to, to design and build something in the yeah, moment. I mean, obviously that, that's got its drawbacks because you don't want, you know, Marks and Spence to be filled with, you know, knee-length tweed skirts for <laughs> five years or whatever. Um, but, um, and, and obviously I'm joking, but, but what I'm saying is you need that novelty because sometimes... You know, customers don't know what the next best thing is because they haven't seen it. Um, yeah. But 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 it needs to be balanced out a bit more, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think if you take um, th- you know through what we're delivering, so we're delivering that size and shape information about consumers. And if you're a designer, you know, the idea of knowing who your customer base is and where they are, it should take out a huge amount of risk out of the supply chain. Yeah. So that you can start to actually gain patronage from consumers and build directly for them. So you can still innovate within that, is what you're saying. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think you know if you take it to its logical conclusion, we'll have made-to-measure clothes at ready-to-wear prices, just in time manufactured. So at the moment, X factory, you know, including build of products and and um, transport costs, you still have about sixty to eighty percent margin left at recommended retail price. But yet retailers are, are making 2% profits. So, you know, what's happening with mm. that 80%? That's all being lost. And that's why Amazon entered the space. Their view is your margin's my opportunity. Mm. I can take a 5% margin. I'm way better at data, logistics, um, and understanding consumer. So I'm going to do a better job of all of that and basically mm. knock you out. This is some ex- and they've not done bad. What, are they at like 30% now of the market? Yeah. So I think in the, in the US, Amazon became the number one seller of clothes last year. Yeah. Blimey. And that's in like two years, wasn't it, or something ridiculous? Well, I think actually it ends up being about seven to eight years, but their, their time scale for going into a market is all about making a return in year seven. Mm. So they invest in a much longer time frame. And currently, if you look at the clothing retail space in the UK, everybody is trying to survive. Yeah. So they're, they're, they've got a one-year time horizon 
probably not much more. Not investing. Because a lot of people don't know that Amazon have so many um, what they call ghost brands and that sort of stuff, which is basically things that you and I take for every day and it's actually owned by Amazon between them and a subsidiary company. So it's quite an interesting sort of way. Like, well, they did it because they bought it and then they rebranded it and Mm. now it's them and that sort of stuff. But this is is an an incredibly important area, isn't it, Paul, that that people are are going to start looking much more at not have this homogenous mass of stuff, you know, and lumping... You know, the one tenth of the whole of the population into yeah. one clothes size. You know, we, and but but actually becoming more personalised, and people want that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got you got lots to think about here because I mean, computer vision is one thing. It's like who owns the data, what happens? It's me, it's a photo, and all that sort of stuff. I think you've got two ends of a spectrum here. I think you've got your algorithms, which are software based, and then you've got the shops that I see in Kowloon and those sorts of places who are actively come in, we'll scan you, and then go away, and we've got an accurate representation of what you're doing. Now, my argument is, you've also got a a person in the middle now which is owned by a company called Amazon um, which is Echo Look isn't it Um, and so you can start to argue like oh that's quite an interesting spectrum that you've got you've got I think a a lot of people will want your system which is software and that sort of stuff don't have to do anything don't have to get naked like TSA and all of that sort of stuff but then you've got an interesting sort of like opportunity to do a lot more with that sort of stuff whether it's um, people when they're pregnant and that sort of stuff or how Mm, they're changing when you change yeah I mean I I think like there's a huge opportunity, you know, everybody's always scared about Amazon, but Amazon are based around thinking about search. So how to get you uh, through to products very quickly. Yeah. Whereas I think what they don't do so well and wh- where the opportunity is for retailers or consumer type focused retailers is to give back the experience. So that's where we feel we can help them. So because we're a visual tool um, and we provide that sense of data, mm-hmm. we can help basically companies who who focus on trying to deliver a personalized experience to deliver against that as a competitive edge against an amazon so mm-hmm. an amazon is about right you know exactly what you want and you're going to and we're going to help you find it and it's a search-based function so there's sixty thousand dresses so we're going to do better at helping you know that it's a blue dress with um, you know, a halter neck etc they're not going to do the thing which is I think the way I like to think about it is like Netflix, which is like, right, okay, we're going to narrow you down to here are the 40 pieces of content that we think are relevant to you and we want to get you in enjoying it as as soon as possible and we're taking the search bar off to the side so you can't even see it. So Mm. that's a Netflix approach, which is like get you into content fast, quick and enjoying stuff. I think a lot of the retailers have a problem with trust and it's for what Sue said earlier, which is a size 14 isn't a size 14. And also they aren't really your best friends. They don't want to see you potentially look good. They want to put money in their coffers. And I think the argument is there's a nice um, middle ground where you've got your friend said you look good in this or, you know, you've Mm. seen fashion apps, which are, you know, you're in the store, send it to five friends and the uh, best one wins and you can offer discounts based on it and that sort of stuff. Um, the future of fashion is a difficult one because it is so personalised in that sort of area. I think when you think about mass market and that sort of stuff, I think Amazon's going to eat everyone. I've, oh, I've got to be brutal. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing. But I think your system offers a lot of value to a lot of retailers, certainly now, who yep. get on board and start getting that data because mm-hmm. it's yep. all about the data um, and figuring out how the... Uh, how they work in this sort of new economy that's emerging yeah. because the future isn't oh i'll just buy that one thing because nine times out of ten you know it ain't gonna fit yeah. you know so it's about figuring out how does that but, system become but personalization is going to be a big thing yeah. isn't it and, oh, and it's, it's already a big thing, thing. Yeah, i mean yeah, in sure. health in food and yeah. i mean you name it you know people have been I mean, the success of the mini for example with the mini car when bmw took it over is, is that you can have 500 variations of the mini yeah you know just because but you can you ask know, then like, you've got choice blindness and stuff like that yeah, yeah, I get, you, I get, like, oh, oh no 
know, yeah. I get that. But, uh, but I think the point that you mentioned about trust is is actually the key one. So I think what we're seeing right now is a transition of retailing from traditional retailers to consumer-focused technology businesses. Mm -hmm. So an Amazon basically has multiple interactions with the consumer on a weekly basis, whereas a typical high street retailer will have an interaction of two and a half times over a year, and they won't know who that consumer is. Yeah. Yeah. So their ability to experiment and um, try and engage with that user is way shorter and way smaller. Mm. Whereas an Amazon can do loads of those mini experiments all of the time. Yeah. And because they're so trusted for everything else they do, they're able to do so and they can therefore grow and innovate way faster than a traditional else, retailer. Yeah. So, Luca, we're going to come on to your, your product after the break. Uh, you're going to have to sell on Amazon, aren't you, presumably, for your product to succeed? You, I mean, do you don't really have Amazon. any choice, do you? We do sell on Amazon, it's necessary. Yeah. We sell both on Amazon and to Amazon, and then yeah. Amazon sell to the consumer. And, and if you don't, as, as, a, as a sort of hardware producer, you, you, I mean... What's your choices, Paul, now? Not, not, not a lot, is there? No. Well, I mean, you've still got the players, haven't you, and that sort of thing, but it's a lot harder these days. Mm. you know. But again, you know, if you want to get in an Apple store, you've got to start six months before anyone else and all of that. Mm. It's got to look great. Everyone has their different specs that you go after. We had LV, didn't we, on um, last week? Yeah. And um, they were saying they're just in John Lewis now, and that process would have taken ages. Well, at ages least a year, probably, yeah. if not longer. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you, you have to, Luca, don't you, actually be on Amazon. You've got, you, you've got no choice. It's, and and then presumably that means you have to, for your company backwards, work out what distribution is going to be, what your pricing point, because if it doesn't work and fit on there, you're going to really struggle. Yeah. Basically, the pricing of uh, bicycle accessories, it's very complex and the line is very long because you have agents, agents talk to the distributors, distributors sell to the shops, shops sell to the consumers. Mm. And when you manufacture a product, you have to account to that because otherwise the price would be driven up so much yeah, and would be yeah. not competitive commercially. Definitely. Well, um, thank you for that. I'm sure we'll talk about Metal again. I mean, I think, yeah. I think um, it's definitely a, a, an area to be in, without Absolutely. a doubt. And I think any retailer should be calling you. No, I think <laughs> they should too, definitely, because retail, you know, bricks and mortar retail is really tough. I mean, it's yeah. really, yeah. really hard, and particularly in the clothing Yes, uh, uh, which is why I guess our early and late adopter market has been Asia. So that's where yeah. we found a, our real traction and we're coming back now because we've developed uh, a way of leveraging our technology to make web photography way cheaper than existing yeah. methods so mm, we can so help yeah. save money whilst we take people yeah. to the future now. In the UK. But, but you have got a, dif dif a different sell from Luca in that obviously Luca's trying to do it to consumers, you're, you're trying to do it into, into businesses and yes. in some respects that's easier. In other ways, it's harder. Exactly. But but you know, in some some ways, it's easier because because you you can see your target yes. and, and yeah. actually you know how to get. So it's to a them. consolidated market. We know exactly who they are, yeah. and then it's about getting them. the story. Yeah. And, and, yeah. There's, and there's fear of them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You just need exactly. to target them. Fascinating. Okay. If you're so, a retailer in trouble, call him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's Metail is M E T A I L. Yes. Metail dot com. So if you are in bricks and mortar, I would say probably need to have a look at that and sharpish. Yeah. And uh, you've got some good um, a good video on there actually on YouTube as well about how how Metail works, which I think explains it really really well. Um, so thank you very much for that. We'll uh, we're going to come back in a minute and um, talk about bicycles. See you in a sec. <laughs> You've joined us at a very good time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Our savvy software development guys have just qualified for a chunky government cash payout thanks to our new friends from Breakthrough Funding. Yeah. Sorry, that just slipped out. Government handout? No, not a handout, but recognition for our clever thinking. 
Now it'll be down to you to help us kick it further forward. Leave it to me. Your company could qualify for Innovation Cash too. Find out online now by answering just six qualifying questions at BreakthroughFunding.com. Yeah! So we're back in the studio and we've been talking to Tom Adiula of Metail and, and we're going to talk to Luca and Grant in a minute about cycles and all that sort of stuff. And um, Just quickly going back, Tom, one of the things that uh, we were just saying in the break is I don't, I'm a bit worried about my data in terms of my body measurements and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I don't go on Facebook and stuff like that because, because I don't want people to access yeah. Uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of data. Um, it's I'm I'm not sure I want somebody to also have my personal measurements as well, um, because if, for example, say I put on you know put on weight over a year or something, and then somebody suddenly might be using that data to bombard me with slimming products or or, or something else. Um, is is that going to be a worry? I mean, is that po- is that a possibility? Yes, yeah, it's, it's something we thought about a lot, and it's yeah. something that we feel very importantly we need to be a custodian of your data and be very clear about what you decide to do with it. So it's not going to be us um, making those choices. And that's, that's in our values about how we basically look after that data. So very much so I don't want your data to be used in that way. I want it to be very clear that you know exactly what's happening with your data, who's going to be using it and why, and you make those choices yourself. So, you know, I'm, I make the choices now, which is like, well, I'm happy for Spotify to use the listening data to, to deliver. Yeah, I'm fine with stuff like to that. To deliver playlists, but, yeah. I, but I, don't, I don't like other pieces of, I don't like the fact that Facebook follows me off Facebook to determine what I'm doing to legitimize its advertising. Yeah. That I don't like. I don't like being followed around by Criteo and so on for ads all around the internet about what I'm doing. That feels uncomfortable to me. And it, it also didn't have, a handoff it didn't have a, a trade-off where they told me can we do this and, mm, and then me yeah. giving explicit consent but, but for me though if people do that i will never buy their product and i mean never mm. even if i want it because yeah. because i just think it's unethical and immoral so well i, I mean, mean and it can backfire on you yeah. so if you're pestering me all the time with your stuff you know forget it forget it i'm never gonna you know you've lost your brand values well we've things. just basically grown up in an era where people haven't understood the value of their own data and mm. other companies have profited it so facebook and google have profited on the fact that consumers don't know the value of don't their understand own data. it yeah mm. yeah so, um, so Luca, Luca uh, Amadusi. So you've got this company called Cycle C Y C L. It's because you're so fast, you've left the E off the end with your cycle. <laughs> and I believe that um, initially you went on to uh, Dragon's Den, didn't you, with your little invention? Yes. So tell okay. us, a, tell us a little bit about about that experience. Do they know what they're looking at after time? By the way, in terms of technology, <laughs> just asking the question. Was a very interesting experience going on Dragon's Den. Basically, we've. We developed a product that is indicators for bicycles. And we what we managed to actually create a product after a Kickstarter campaign. Um, the company was growing slowly. So we we decided to try the Dragon's Den experience. For us, it's been a very interesting experience. As um, you show up in the studio, you get bombarded uh, with questions from this very, very smart entrepreneurs. And at the very beginning, it's very overwhelming. But then you realize that it's very similar to any other investor meeting. 
so in our case, they became very nice with us short after the initial presentation. And the result have been a very good episode. Because mm. some of them are dreadful, aren't they? They're just like, they're so horrible to them. Sometimes <laughs> they <laughs> tear you completely apart. Absolutely. But mainly they try to figure out if you're prepared. Yeah. If you know your numbers. You've got to know All these kind of things. As so long as you're prepared and know your numbers. Not that I'm going to quiz you, but talk to me about the context of this. Like, how big is the market for this and that sort of stuff? Like, how many bikes? What are we talking about? Um, it's estimated and in the world there are about... Two billion bicycles. Mm-hmm. Is that a big enough market for you, Paul? Every yeah. year. I mean, not all of them can afford the blinkers, <laughs> but sure, go on. Obviously not. But every year uh, in Europe and US, that are our main market in Europe, there are 20 million new bicycles sold. In the US, 18 million new bicycles. So we are talking about a very large market. Obviously, indicators are not for everyone yeah. yet and are not really diffuse. And why not? Why aren't they for everyone? Uh, they come with, there are things that come with time. So mm-hmm. uh, 60 years ago, indicators in car became common. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, about 35, 40 years ago, um, indicators on motorcycle mm-hmm. became common. Before, it was in signal, just like on bicycles. Um, today, uh, bicycle in the street, they, they use in signals. But I think we are close enough to the moment where... I mean, if you think about it, it is ridiculous that you stick your arm out to tell somebody you're going left. I mean, if you just think yeah. about that whole thing, that is just stupid. Especially because I mean, you're you're not balanced properly. It's just stupid. That's Why how we do that. We should have. In, we should, I just thought about this. Well, you should have indicators. It's silly. But I'm always thinking about like bigger people on bikes because mm. if you're bigger, you're mm. not going to see the indicators. Well, I don't know. Where I are don't the know. okay? So where are the indicators <laughs> put then? Well, I see a lot of big people on bikes. So. Go at the very end of the handlebar. Yeah, making it also a little larger than it actually is at the moment. Yeah. So, in theory, even if you are quite large, it's feasible You're still from safe. behind. Yeah. Uh, but business like, safe. We found the need for indicators actually after me and my business partner we moved to London. And we were using the bicycle quite often just as a mean of transport. And in certain streets, especially large streets, when you had to change lane or the big roundabouts like uh, Hyde Park Corner. Hyde Park Corner. Oh. It becomes really difficult to indicate where you have the taxi going super fast and yeah. overtaking you super fast and sticking the arm out uh, while you have a lot of bumps in the street. Yeah, yeah potholes so as well. This maybe... Year. We could do something for this. Mm. Used to driving Vespas that commonly have indicators. We thought, let's try to design something for bike. And, and that's uh, how we start. Yeah. Um, you probably won't believe this, but High Park Corner used not to have any traffic lights at all. It literally was just a, a bun fight and a free-for-all. At least it's now it's got traffic lights. But it's typical of a junction, isn't it? You've got people literally going in five or six different directions, all trying to cr- cross over each other to get where, to where they're going to be. And by, cyclists are very, very vulnerable, aren't they, at that point? Yeah. Mm. It's really it's really scary. Like, the first scary. time I went there with a bike, I was <laughs> scared. Quite scared. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just explain Describe how these. It, yeah. Um, yeah. So just explain how these um, the, these indicators work. They're, they're obviously waterproof. Um, they're aluminium. Uh, I presume they've got a battery of some sort. Yeah, they're battery it? operated. They have four very powerful orange LED lights, and they simply mount with a universal plug at the very end of your handlebar. Those are designed for straight handlebar. We are developing a version for drop bar. 
And while when you have to turn, you simply tap on one of them, they blink, and then tap again to turn them off, or they turn off themselves after 45 seconds if you forget. See, ideal. Just right Simple. for your bike. Um, yeah, my, my bike in my mind, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so who are you selling them to at the moment? Are you, are you selling them through, as you say, direct, direct but, but, but also are you selling them to cycle shops and stuff like that? Uh, yes, we are in Alfords. Um, we, uh, we are in Argos at the moment. Uh, Amazon uh, is a very, very, very important client of us. Yeah. Uh, actually, we were talking about Amazon before. Uh, um, we recently started to sell to Amazon, so now they are sold by Amazon yeah. rather than from us. And how much is it for a set? Um, we have three versions. We have a plastic version that goes for nineteen ninety nine, um, an aluminium version that goes for twenty nine ninety nine. Oh wow! And a magnetic <laughs> version that is removable, so it doesn't get stolen, that sells for thirty nine ninety nine. And in your company, um, Cycle, C-Y-C-L, um, what other things are you doing in, inside that company? Um, at the moment, we are working on developing a few new products that we aim to launch um, late 2018, like the first one, late 2018. I cannot anticipate much, unfortunately. Oh, well, it's uh, one of those we... secret things again. That happened last week on the show, didn't yeah. it? It's a secret, not allowed to tell you the next one. Uh, we also start recently to distribute uh, electric bicycle and electric mopeds. So electric bicycles. Now, I'm thinking of buying one because I live in an incredibly hilly place uh, by the sea. Uh, very, very hilly. And it's great most of the time. But there are certain I there's no way I can get up some of the hills uh, where I live. So I was thinking, if I have a little electric bike, you know, I can that motor can just kick in on the hard bits. Is that about, is that is that possible? That's exactly how the motor works. Right, so, supports you in the especially in the hardest bits. Yeah, and um, and does it have to be on all the time so that you cycle slower, or can you just use it when you want it to kick no, in? You just use it when you want it to kick in, and you can regulate the power and the amount of assistance so you can have a very limited assistance or a very strong assistance when you're tired ah and and uh, then presumably can you just plug it in at home or, or how yeah, normally 95 percent of them they have a removable battery that you just take in your house and plug or you can just plug it in your if you have a garage yeah, that's good so you probably you'd like one of those paul they also have a <laughs> <laughs> you just don't like bikes at all do you uh, I've probably been biased because I live in London and they are to some degree half of the issue with the roads and that sort of stuff. My issue is not with cyclism or cyclists or anything like that. It is through lack of training. And when you get on a bike, you don't have to have any training. When you get in front of a car, you have to spend a year learning how to use a car. I'm not saying that both are the same, but you are on the same road. My issue is more around that, but also the way that London is uh, built and continuing to be built and segregated into different like areas and that sort of stuff. Bikes best will in the world want more of them on the road best will in the world there will be more accidents the more bikes there are in london that is just the sad well, fact of the way but the, i do the think there's going to come a time where a lot of cars can be oh, it has to be uh, it has and to at be. which point then cycling's safe yeah. isn't it it's i always say the best taxi is the red one the bus mm. yeah, yeah no i've got it's a great bus. one yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how many cyclists you see being run over when you're on the top of the bus is quite a lot actually yeah. but I, I, road. I will say i am seeing more people indicate and that sort of stuff and yeah, seeing yeah. lots more like led lights and that they are it's taking good. safety a lot yeah, more it's good you know that's the good thing so um electric bikes now do, do if you have an electric bike do you have to be insured 
No, no, not necessary. So you just, you just carry on as normal. So it's still a bicycle. It's still a bicycle. One of the nice things about the electric bikes is that it's still a bicycle, but you can reach your destination without being quite sweaty. sweaty. Yes. <laughs> and that's a huge advantage. They're a bit, a lot more expensive than yeah. a normal bike, but yes. And what would you recommend? I mean, there's some really funky ones out there at the moment. I think it's called the Go Cycle and stuff like that, where they look amazing. But they're about £3,000. They're so expensive. And then you get these other ones that look a bit, you know, old-fashioned. But, you know, they've just got like what seems like a power pack on on the sort of middle section or ones on the sort of back. Is it better to have... um, you know, the, the battery pack in the middle or at the, the back of the bike? Or does it matter? It doesn't affect that much. But having it in the middle, the bicycle is Better a balance. bit more stable. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. That can be advantage. Now, you've decided to move into um, importing uh, mopeds so even further, um, which is really interesting, which is why we have Grant with us. So explain to us, Grant, why, why the move now from cycles into mopeds? Um, I just think that it was a uh, natural uh, progression from what Luca's already doing. Um, it's all about sustainable urban mobility. Um, it's about making a positive impact on the environment, especially within London. Um, having London hit its annual limit for pollution levels in January this year. You've got um, another 11 months to go. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it is a passion of ours to improve the commuter experience and, and actually electric mopeds are something that, I mean, the mopeds in general get a bad rap and we can go into that maybe a little bit later on. But um, ultimately, uh, the rest of Europe are using mopeds to navigate around their cities they so work very well i can understand if you if you're a cyclist and you want to get the exercise and that's part of why you're doing it um i can get that but but there are loads of mopeds and and small cc bikes on the road i can't imagine why they shouldn't be electric you know why aren't they electric I mean, it just makes more sense i think the education's not there yet and the awareness is not there and a lot of people also i think you know as, as, if you have initiatives if you have the government getting behind it if you have the visibility of, of, of providing opportunities for these uh, petrol moped drivers to secure an electric version, and they understand the uh, advantages of going electric, because actually it's not just an ethical move, you know, to do something great for our environment, but it also saves you a hell of a lot of money. I mean, I was going to say, and then why would you have a petrol tank uh, which takes up space? We might, it's, it's no different. You know, with a bike, it is different. You've mm-hmm. got to find this extra space and this extra weight. But if, you, if you've got a petrol tank and stuff, it's, it's, it's not making any difference. So why would it not be electric? No, I mean, you, in electric terms, you're spending 10% of what you would spend on petrol fuel. So that mm. is a massive saving. Um, maintenance as well is, is it comes right down. It's something like £45 a year just on making sure that you maintain the moped. You don't have to pay road tax. You can park it free in Westminster. There's, you know, infinite reasons why you should actually move to an and, electric and the sound version. it's quieter. It, it's quieter. I mean, some people argue that they like the, you know, the, the revs and all of that kind of stuff. But um, ultimately, you know, if you jump on an electric moped and we are getting our, our first uh, batch of electric mopeds from Italy um, by a brand called Ascol, they are Italy's best selling electric moped brand. They're really exciting. Um, they're great for um, men and women alike. They're very um, manageable. They're not big and bulky. 
Um, and uh, it's actually a really, really enjoyable experience. Mm. It's not just about going, hey, you know what, let me jump on uh, an electric moped because it's good for the environment. It's actually it's a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, obviously Italian's beautiful country and lots more sunshine than here, so you can see it being a bit more conducive to that. But they've got a real culture and history of, of you know, of, of using mopeds, haven't mm. they? From, yeah. You know, so, so they're a bit more attuned to it. Do you see that being coming over here? More? I do. I think we're, you know, London is a late adopter market here as well for mopeds. But I think, you know, with everything, it's about adopting uh, a kind of a conscious shift in the way that you get around. And actually, if you if you really weigh it up, I mean, you're spending a lot of money on public transport. Um, I mean, the amount of people that run for their bus or, you know, your your bus is coming and then, you know, it's delayed. Do you want to go for it, Paul? Do not get me started with that. (laughs) There's one, five, ten minutes away. Right. Just come. Same with the the train. And then when you get on the bus. Same with the train, there's one one minute after. You get on the bus after waiting like 20 minutes and then they park up because they want to regulate the traffic. Mm. So not only are you late, but then you have to wait for them to regulate the traffic. And actually, it would just be a lot better if you could just walk but the best thing would be to jump on your electric moped and take full control of your life and literally get from a to b as quick as possible in the most enjoyable way i mean it is difficult being on the roads in in, in either a bike or, or, or a moped you know and there are some real issues about it and it isn't for everybody it's certainly not for the faint-hearted can you tell that grant has had a creative background before I this can. I like <laughs> grant well, I what's the price tag with a um moped at the moment so we've got three uh models um it's coming in at 2686 but the great thing is that we will be having a plug-in motorcycle grant which will give you 20 percent off the recommended retail price so your es1 which is equivalent of a 50 cc comes in at 2149 um, and then that goes to your two seater fifty C, which is fifty cc engine, which is uh, the ES two. That's that goes from three thousand three hundred and seventy three to two thousand six hundred and ninety nine. I know. I've, I've do, <laughs> do you need um, do, do you need a, a, a license to to drive these things? You, if you took your driving license uh, before two thousand and one, you can jump on a fifty cc, uh, no problem. Is that right, Luca? Yep. Yeah. Um, if it was beyond 2001, you have to take a CBT test. But we've teamed up now with um, with iPass in Richmond. We're, we're basically working on, on lots and lots of different partnerships to make this transition from however you travel now into uh, jumping on an electric moped as seamless as possible. Um, so but, we'll but, set but with all up due for respect, you. some of the uh, some of the electric mo- some of the electric cycles are incredible. Um, so that's a very good choice if if you if you know if you don't want to pass your test or you know mm. you haven't got it. There are two different kind of vehicles. Yeah. So with the electric bicycles, regardless, to make it work, you have to pedal. If you don't pedal, yeah, yeah, yeah. the bicycle doesn't move. Mm. Then the engine supports you and move does most of the um, push for you, but you still have to pedal. Yeah. And the electric mopeds, you just accelerate and, just go. and it goes so even my mum could drive one of them yes 
She was. She's got a license before two thousand, and she's got a license before eighteen eighty. <laughs> so presumably she could get she could get one. Yeah. So the difference is, is is what you want it for, isn't it? Then and, and you know, what you're going to use it for. And of course we're talking about London, but but if you don't live in London, I would imagine these one of these mopeds would be incredible. You know, if you if you were living, especially you know rurally or, or yeah, in, yeah. in a, a you know lovely provincial town somewhere yeah. uh, that isn't quite as congested. It's we're a talking great to way various to, councils actually on that basis. Yeah. You know, a lot of people that live in like you say rural areas and especially the you know the, the ones that struggle to get to and from town you know on a bus that basically leaves their village every two hours you know it's it's quite a difficult world for them to actually have an electric moment mm. that they can take the battery out of plug it indoors it goes from you know not to 100 percent charge within three and a half hours and then that will take you 30 miles yeah you know, yeah, it, it, it's a really, really great move. Hmm. I used to live in a village once and the, the bus was only once every two hours. And I got on it once because I thought it might be quite good fun. And the, the, the bus driver ran over a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to get out and tell the farmer. It's like, don't tell wow. the farmer, we're all going to be late. I mean, two hours, is it? That chicken was, was worth something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so different, but London's not quite like that exactly, is it? But, um, yeah, mm. pe- people no would chickens. not stop for that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, they wouldn't, would they? Um, so uh, the the name of the bike that the that the guys are going to be importing is called Ascol. The name of it, Ascol, which is A S K O L Yeah, Ascol. Um, and can people go onto the cycle uh, website, your cycle website, Luca, to find that? Not yet. Not That's yet, but they, they will, will do. Okay. But they can find out about the electro bikes, they can find out about the indicators there. And that's um, cycle without an e dot co dot uk. That's correct. Um, and you've got plans for new products coming online very yes. soon. Bicycle safety product. Bicycle that's safety. our focus the product that we're developing. Mm, okay. And, and are you are you a cyclist at all? I am, but I've got a puncture at the moment. So, and I use a nice piece of kit actually, which I supported on Kickstarter, which is like a compass so that I put it on my bike. I, I put in where I'm going and it would just point me in the direction with, so I can cycle away without thinking, do I need to go left or right? I just keep going in the so direction like, I need oh, to go. Wow, okay. Well, which one? Good. It's uh, called Beeline. Oh. So. You may need to be selling that as well. <laughs> I know the guys. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so that's Tom Adiula, and he's um, from Meta, which is very, very exciting, I think, and definitely uh, an area to watch, and, and uh, all sorts of developments in that that that, that space. I think, don't you? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and if you want to uh, find out about Metail, and don't forget, this is just um, you know, can, this is just business to business, isn't it? It's Metail.com, M-E-T-A-I-L.com. Um, and uh, thank you very much again to Luca Amaduzzi and Grant Dudson of Cycle. Um, cycling, mopeds, definitely something for the future. Electric cars. Yeah. Um, we're not going to be continuing to see cars in the way we are. No, they're Ten pushing years them out, time, I would say. I'd be very surprised if the roads are like they are at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, autonomous, autonomic, and all of that sort of stuff's coming into play as well nowadays. So mm-hmm. that'll be a very interesting. Very, very surprised. So, um, you've been listening to the Tech Talk Show. Uh, we're now syndicated dozens of radio stations, or you can get us via Podbean, iTunes, the podcast app, you name it. Um, and I'd like to thank my fellow presenter, who clearly isn't a cyclist. Um, <laughs> are you? Shocking. Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> Anyone who's ever seen me or met me? Yeah. Why were you presenting today when you're not a cyclist? Um, and he's author of. Because I'm open to new things. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
What I might do is get one of those little buggy things at the back and you can sit at the back of my little bike. That would oh. be good, wouldn't it? Like those I'd love to see you get up a hill. Yeah, I'd love to see me get off. <laughs> I'd love to see me start. Um, if you want to recommend any future guests as someone doing something groundbreaking, please get in touch with us at, uh, well, via Twitter is best, on at Tech Talk Show UK. If you want to listen to hundreds of our podcasts, go to techtalkshow.co.uk and you'll find them all on there or on iTunes or any of that stuff. Um, so really wish you have a good week. Bye now. <laughs>